Hello, this is Dr. Pengxian Qian, the Editor-in-Chief of High Rhythm. Here is a summary of the April 2021 issue of the journal. The first four papers related to COVID-19 and high rhythm disorders. The first original article is titled Atrial Fibrillation is an Independent Predictor for In-Hospital Mortality in Patients Admitted with SARS-CoV-2 Infection. AF occurred in 1,687 of 9,564 patients, or 17.6%. Of those, 1,109 patients, or 65.7%, had new-onset atrial fibrillation. There was a higher in-hospital mortality in the AF group than control. Within the AF group, there was higher in-hospital mortality in patients with new-onset atrial fibrillation as compared with those with a history of atrial fibrillation. The risk ratio of in-hospital mortality for new-onset atrial fibrillation in patients with sinus rhythm was 1.56. The authors conclude that in patients hospitalized with COVID-19, 17.6% experienced atrial fibrillation. AF, particularly new-onset, was an independent predictor of in-hospital mortality. This paper was followed by a viewpoint article titled The Possible Association Between COVID-19 and the Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome and an editorial on COVID-19 infection and heart rhythm disorders. Up next is insulin-like growth factor binding protein 7 and the risk of congestive heart failure hospitalization in patients with atrial fibrillation. Insulin-like growth factor binding protein 7, or IGF-BP7, is a marker of myocardial damage. The authors analyzed two prospective multi-center observational cohort studies that included 3,691 atrial fibrillation patients. Levels of IGF-BP-7 and NT-proBNP levels were measured from frozen plasma samples at baseline. The authors found that the higher plasma levels of IGF-BP-7 were strongly and independently associated with CHF hospitalization in AF patients. The prognostic information provided by IGF-BP-7 was additive to that of anti-pro-BNP. The following article is titled Self-Reported Physical Activity and Atrial Fibrillation Risk, a Systematic Review and a Meta-Analysis. The authors analyzed 15 studies reporting data from 1.5 million individuals with a median age of 55.3 years. Individuals achieving guideline-recommended level of physical activity had a significantly lower risk of AF with a hazard ratio of 0.94. Those response analysis showed that the physical activity levels up to 1,900 mat minutes per week were associated with a lower risk of AF, with less certainty beyond that level. They also conclude that the physical activity at the guideline recommended levels and above are associated with a significantly lower AF risk. However, at the 2,000 med minutes per week and beyond, the benefit 
is less clear. The next article is Marshall Bundle Elimination, Pulmonary Vein Isolation, and Line Completion for Anatomical Ablation of Persistent Atrial Fibrillation, or Marshall Plan, Prospective Single Center Study. These studies were done strictly based on anatomical considerations. The authors included 75 consecutive patients. Vein or Marshall ethanol infusion was completed in 69 patients, or 92%. At 12 months, 54 or 75 patients, or 72%, were free from AT or AF after a single procedure and without antiarrhythmic drugs in the overall cohort. The authors conclude that a novel ablation strategy that systematically targets anatomical atrial structures include vein-marshal ethanol infusion, pulmonary vein isolation, and pre-specified linear lesions is feasible, safe, and associated with high rate of freedom from arrhythmia recurrence at 12 months in patients with persistent AF. Following that article is one titled The Decrease in Peak Atrial Longitudinal Strain in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation as a Practical Parameter for Stroke Risk Stratification. Decreased atrial longitudinal strain, or LA strain, derived from two-dimensional speckle tracking is frequently observed in patients with atrial fibrillation and associated with the risk of ischemic stroke. The authors studied 1,364 subjects with atrial fibrillation. Among them, 105 encountered ischemic strokes during a mean follow-up period of three years. The standard score of the LA strain was calculated and classified into five groups. The clinical endpoint was an ischemic stroke. The Kaplan-Meier analysis showed higher rates of stroke in worse LA strain groups. This data suggests that the decrease in LA strain could be applied in a stratified manner and is significantly associated with the risk of stroke independent of the baseline covariates. Coming up next is castor ablation of ventricular arrhythmias in left ventricular non-compaction cardiomyopathy. 42 non-related patients with left ventricular non-compaction or LVNC, and ventricular arrhythmias were included. 13 patients, or 31%, had isolated LVNC. 27, or 64%, had LVNC associated with dilated cardiomyopathy. And 2, or 5%, had LVNC associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Most patients had PVCs and VTs. Endocardial mapping and ablation were performed in 19 patients, or 45.2%, and epicardial ablation was performed in three cases. The authors found that the substrate of ventricular arrhythmias in LVNC cardiomyopathy is heterogeneous with origin in ventricular outflow tracts, protective system related, and the resembling scar patterns in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. The next one is titled Temperature and the Flow-Controlled Ablation, Very High-Power Short-Duration Ablation versus Conventional Power-Controlled Ablation. 
comparison of focal and linear lesion characteristics. Lesion characteristics in right atrium, left atrium, and right ventricle of six sheep were compared between very high power short duration, that is 90 watts and 4 seconds, and standard radio frequency setting of 30 watts and 30 seconds. Lesions in left ventricle were compared targeting 50 watt for 60 seconds applications. The authors found that the temperature and the flow controlled very high power short duration ablation procedure uh, produces larger, shallower, more homogeneous, and less hemorrhagic lesions. Very high power short duration ablation pr produces more transmural and contiguous linear lesions compared to power con controlled ablation. They also found that LV lesions are more homogeneous with fewer steam pops in temperature and flow-controlled ablation. Up next is fixation beats, a novel marker for reaching the left bundle branch area during deep septal lead implantation. The fixation beats are the ectopic beats with small Q large R or small rs and large r prime morphology in lead v1 during lead fixation would predict whether the desire, desired intraseptal lead depths had been reached whereas the length of fixation beads would indicate a too shallow position and the need for more lead rotations a total of 339 patients and 1278 lead rotation events were analyzed in the retrospective phase, fixation beads were observed in 327 of 339 final lead positions and in 9 of 939 intermediate lead positions. Sensitivity, specificity, and the positive and negative predicted values of the fixation beads as a marker for reaching the lead bundle branch area were around 96 to 97%. In the prospective fixation beads guided implantation phase, fixation beads were observed in all patients and only at the LBB capture depth. The authors conclude that monitoring fixation beads during deep septal lead deployment can facilitate the procedure and possibly increase the safety of lead implantation. The next article is titled Systematic quantification of histological ventricular fibrosis in isolated mitral valve prolapse and sudden cardiac death. The purpose of this study was to systematically quantify left and the right ventricular fibrosis in patients with isolated mitral valve prolapse or MVP and sudden cardiac death. They found 17 cases and 17 match controls. The mitral valve prolapse and sudden cardiac death group had increased LV and interventricular septum fibrosis, but similar amounts of RV fibrosis compared to controls. The authors conclude that non-uniform left ventricular remodeling with both localized and generalized left ventricular fibrosis is important in the pathogenesis of sudden cardiac death in individuals with mitral valve prolapse. Up next is prognostic value of cardiac magnetic resonance septal late gadolinium enhancement patterns for 
periaortic ventricular tachycardia ablation. Heterogeneity of the anterosepal substrate in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Among 234 patients referred for scar-related VT ablation between 2017 and 2020, 25 patients had a total of 108 VTs were analyzed. A greater number of VT morphologies were induced in patients with full-length septal late gadolinium enhancement, or LGE, compared to partial septal LGE. Patients with VT recurrence had larger septal LGE volumes compared to those without. And median follow-up of 16 months Overall freedom from VT recurrence was 52% and significantly higher in patients with partial septal LGE than those with full-length septal LGE. The authors conclude that VT originating from an anteroseptal substrate is associated with heterogeneous patterns and the extent of a CMR septal scar. Pre-procedural imaging may substratify this challenging patient population for the propensity for multiple induced VT morphologies and recurrence after caster ablation. That paper is followed by another paper on myocardial scar titled Prior Myocarditis and Ventricular Arrhythmias, The Importance of Scar Pattern. This was a retrospective study of consecutive 144 patients with prior myocarditis and arrhythmic presentation. Anteroseptal scar was present in 44% of cases. 61 patients, or 42%, underwent castor ablation. The presence of anteroseptal scar was found to be an independent predictor of ventricular arrhythmia relapse, both in patients treated with castor ablation and in the overall population. The authors conclude that in patients with prior myocarditis and ventricular arrhythmia, the presence of an anteroseptal scar negatively predicts outcomes irrespective of treatment strategy. Next up is etiology and the prognosis of patients with unexplained syncope and mid-range left ventricular dysfunction. 104 patients were prospectively followed for two years. In 71 patients, or 68%, a diagnosis was reached. Arrhythmic causes were most common etiology, including 45% of AV block and 9.6% of ventricular tachycardia. The mortality rate was 8.1% person years, and the sudden or unknown death rate was 0.9% person year. These findings indicate that in patients with mid-range left ventricular dysfunction and syncope of unknown cause, a systematic diagnostic strategy based on electrophysiology study and or implantable cardiac monitoring implantation allows the diagnosis to be reached in a high proportion of cases and guides the treatment. Arrhythmia is the most common cause of syncope in this population, particularly AV block. The next article is Twin Atrial Ventricular Nodes, Arrhythmias and Survival in Pediatric and Adult Patients with Heterotaxy Syndrome. Of the 366 heterotaxy patients enrolled, 326, or 89%, had right atrial isomerism, or RAI, 
35 or 9.6 percent had left atrial isomerism or LAI, and the 5 or 1.4 percent had indeterminate isomerism. 71 or 19.4 percent of patients were adults. Arrhythmia occurred in 37.2 percent of patients, most of whom with supraventricular tachycardia. Twin AV nodes were identified in 51% of patients with RAI, 8.7% patients with LAI, and 40% of patients with indeterminate isomerism and were the key predictors of SVT. The authors conclude that RAI was the predominant subtype of heterotaxy in this cohort. Collectively, the median RAI over LAI ratio was 0.731 and 5.450 in Western and East Asian studies, respectively. Arrhythmias, tachycardia, or paced bradycardia were common, but the spectrum was distinct among subtypes. Up next is the electrophysiological effects of ranolazine in GOAT model of long atrial fibrillation. Ranolazine is an antiarrhythmic drug reported to have strong atrial selectivity. Electrode patches were implanted on atrial epicardium of eight Dutch milk goats. Experiments were performed at baseline and after two and 14 days of electrically maintained AF. Ranolazine significantly prolonged atrial effective refractory period and decreased atrial conduction velocity at baseline and after two days of atrial fibrillation. After two weeks of atrial fibrillation, ranolazine prolonged the AF cycle length, but was not effective in restoring sinus rhythm. The authors conclude that a high dose of ranolazine affected both atrial and ventricular EP parameters at the different stages of AF-induced remodeling, but was not efficacious in cardioverting atrial fibrillation to sinus rhythm in a GOAT model of long atrial fibrillation. The following paper is high-intensity ultrasound caster ablation achieves deep mid-myocardial lesions in vivo. Irrigated 12 uh, French ultrasound casters were tested in an ex vivo perfused swine myocardial ablation model. Maximal lesion depths and volume was reached by 6.5 MHz casters. Lesion depths by growth pathology was similar post-ablation and at 30 days. Lesion volume decreased post-ablation to 30 days, yet transmorality increased from 58% to 81%. Magnetic resonance imaging confirmed dense septal ablation by delayed enhancement with increased T1 time post-ablation and at 30 days and increased T2 time only post-ablation. The authors conclude that high-intensity ultrasound cast ablation may be an effective treatment of mid-myocardial or epicardial ventricular arrhythmias from an endocardial approach. Up next is identification of two preclinical canine models of atrial fibrillation to facilitate drug discovery. The purpose of this study was to provide a comprehensive head-to-head -head assessment of five K9AF models. Careful evaluation showed that acute atrial tachypacing 
atrial tachypacin for four weeks and the heart failure model all were unsuccessful in generating reproducible AF episodes of sufficient duration to study anti-arsenic drugs. In contrast, intermittent long-term atrial tachypacin uh, generated AF lasting greater or equal to 4.5 hours in about 30% of the animals. The acute model using carbocol and short-term atrial tachypacin resulted in AF induction of greater than 15 minutes in greater than 75% of animals, thus enabling testing of anti-arrhythmic drugs. The authors conclude that intermittent long-term atrial tachypacin and a combination of local carbocal injection with successive short-term atrial tachypacin may contribute to future drug development efforts for AF treatment. These above original articles are followed by a contemporary review titled Current Strategies to Minimize Post-Operative Hematoma Formation in Patients Undergoing Cardiac Implantable Electronic Device Implantation, a review. Dr. Moretti wrote a viewpoint titled The Diagnosis and the Cure of Supraventricular Tachycardia as a fourth entry in our series of articles to celebrate the 30th year of RF ablation. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm the Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Peng Xian Chen.